Hi everyone, this is NBC10 Boston's Countdown to Decision 2022, where we break down the biggest political news leading up to Election Day. We're 20 days out. I'm your host, Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Allison King and Sue O'Connell, and a special guest, Evan Horowitz, of Tufts University's Center for State Policy Analysis. Today, we're breaking down the ballot questions. Thrilled to be here to talk about questions. <laughs> Allison, can you start us off with question one, the millionaire's tax, otherwise known as the fair share amendment? Can you just explain to us what it is and what we need to know about it? Well, this is certainly the ballot question that's getting the most attention. And you've got to be like living under a rock if you haven't seen a TV commercial about this or um, heard about it at this point. It basically says that um, income over a million dollars will get an extra surtax of 4%. Um, I believe we did an analysis. And if there was something you'd get uh, for another 150000 if for if you made $1.5 million, say, in a given year, you'd pay an extra, I believe it was... Oh gosh, now I'm gonna. There was twenty. Did you say twenty? Twenty. Yeah, an additional. It was. I did this. So, and Evan, you helped me with it. An additional twenty thousand dollars. So, you know, we're not talking peanuts here, but um, you know, I think a lot of people will see this question and say, "Oh, you know, I'm not a millionaire, and uh, sure, why not tax them? The you know, the people who do make over a million. Um, it gets complicated when you talk about people who are selling homes, selling businesses, people who are not millionaires, who are retiring. Um, and they have this, as Evan has taught me, this one year where they may make over a million dollars and then get stuck with this extra surtax. I think, um, you know, the polling shows that uh, it, it's it's close, but leaning toward passing, I believe. Um, and I think that... Um, you know, I, I as with all these ballot questions, it's really important to read read through them and not just rely on the TV commercials because it is a little more complicated and it could affect you in a way you think that it may not. Totally. Um, Evan, Sue, anything to add on that? Well, I just want to give a, a blanket disclaimer and bias that I hate ballot questions with a passion. I understand why we have ballot questions, especially in the state of Massachusetts, where it seems the only way you can get our state lawmakers to do anything is to have a ballot question. And I point to legalized marijuana and sports gambling as an example. So the idea of a ballot question is a good one that the people can take into their own hands pushing forward ideas and laws and letting the people vote when they think the lawmakers aren't doing anything. Having said that, in recent history, these questions have often been um, uh, initiated by special interest groups, by businesses, by people who have grudges, which I think we'll get into in a minute. And they are a blunt instrument um, in, a, in a world where most of us uh, really are having a hard time paying attention. <laughs> I have to do a lot of studying to understand what these questions mean and can do, as does do all of us. And we do this for a living. So I think it's an unfair burden to put on voters to do this. Having said that, um, they're here and we're stuck with them. But <laughs> underscore that point, find out who is funding these. You can go to uh, our websites at NECN and NBC10 Boston. Also, Ballotpedia is a great place to go to see who the funders are and why they're doing it. And you don't have to vote on them. You can go into the ballot box and leave them, leave them blank, or you can vote in a way that doesn't change anything. You are under no requirement to participate in this craziness. That's just my public service announcement. <laughs> 
Thank well, you for that, Sue. I'm going to partially agree with Sue, but I, I don't think question one is one of those questions. Like, I, I do think there are ballot questions where you think, why is this before voters? We'll talk about question two and question three. I think both those questions, you wonder, how, why are we asking voters about this? But the millionaire's tax seems to me is a, is a perfectly reasonable thing to ask voters about. Should we increase taxes on really high earners and earmark the money for education and transit is a values question at base, like question four is. And and I think that's reasonable. Now, are there technical sides to it? Like, yes, sure. We can ask how much money is it really going to raise and how many small businesses are really going to pay and how, how much tax avoidance is there going to be? But at base, there's a kind of core question uh, that touches voters' values about tax fairness, uh, inequality, and the role of the state in addressing these issues. And Mary, I would just add one more thing about the millionaire's tax, which this is what I love about, I don't know if this is true in other countries, but we all think we're going to be millionaires at some point to our question about whether or not this is going to pass or not. I'm not a millionaire now, but I hope to be someday. And I don't want to pay extra taxes. Actually, I'm okay paying extra taxes. But I mean, you know, this is the battle we have with the inheritance tax all the time. People, you know, who are born in into a lower economic status actually believe in America, we're all having the opportunity to make great wealth because some of us do and some of us don't and we want to be able to leave it to our families so um you know whether or not this is a slam dunk also has to do with what about our potential and one other quick point on the millionaire's tax um that that money that is raised from it would be uh channeled toward its uh education and transportation so that's what the legislature says absolutely and it's written in in the law that that's where it goes there is a debate going on over how the you know state house how the legislators would actually handle that would they just sort of take money out of the normal budgeting of education and transportation and plug this in so that it really didn't bump up that much they say that's not going to happen the opposition says you can't hope they could do it there's nothing preventing them from doing it um so that's something to consider too you know if people who are skeptics of what goes on on beacon hill might wonder about that Okay, I mean, we did, a, we did a bunch of research on this for what it's worth because uh, it's not the first time that you know states have tried to raise money and earmark it for education i mean the, the classic example would be state lotteries you know when state lotteries were introduced uh a lot of states decided well we'll raise new money and we'll earmark it for education so you can go back and look and say well did education spending really go up um and the you know the short answer to the question is yeah it went up but not one for one so you know our, our assessment here is that something like 30 to 70 cents of every dollar raised by the millionaire's tax will drive increased spending in these areas. So that's not all of it, right? Some of it will leak into other areas, but some of it will go to those, um, to education transportation. And the big reason isn't because lawmakers will have to, they, they don't have to, you know, as Elson says, like there's no obligation for them to do it, but those are areas they want to spend money on. Those are high priority areas. So if they have extra money, you should expect them to spend it on the areas that, where they want to spend. And Evan, isn't it true that because it changes the constitution, you can't just decide, the legislature can't say, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. We decided this isn't working. We don't like this. I believe it would require two constitutional conventions with a majority voting in each one. It's more complicated to get rid of it if you don't like it. Yeah. To, you mean to undo the question. Let's exactly. say voters pass it, it has some weird unintended consequences. Lots of you know innovative people decide to get up and leave the state. And we're like, oh no, we made a terrible mistake. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely, Allison. It, it makes it a lot harder to undo. It would take years. There are probably interim steps you can take. There's stuff you can do by statute in the meantime. But um, yeah, it, it will be much harder to undo than typical. You know, typically ballot questions are just laws, 
they're, you know, they're just statutes. And if you want to undo them, you just undo them. Um, this one's not like that. And it causes the, the problem that you raise. Okay, interesting. Anything else on question one before we move on to the second question there? Okay, great. So question two, regulation of dental insurance. This is one of those one of those ones where you guys are like, why is this before voters? Evan, can you just can you just give us a little bit of a, a brief explainer on what this no, is? No, I'm glad you asked me because I I know more about dental insurance right now, like at this moment, than I have ever known or will <laughs> ever know again. So like now is the time to ask me about dental insurance. <laughs> great. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but the basic idea, like you do have to understand a little something about insurance, you know, every month, uh, if you have dental insurance, you pay a premium to your insurance company, you know, you pay a monthly premium. And then when you go to the dentist, they cover some of your dental costs. So that's the basic model. They get premiums from you. They pay out a certain amount for your care. And the sort of big question behind this ballot initiative is, are they paying out enough relative to the amount they're taking in? So what if they're taking in a, a lot, but only paying out a little bit in care? So the ballot question says, well, we want to set a mandate where they have to pay out at least 83 cents of every dollar they collect from you in premiums. So for every dollar they get from you in premiums, 83 cents has to go to cover dental care. And that's, I mean, that's the fundamental thing. And it would really change the, uh, you know, we think the accounting world of the of dental insurance. There are lots of issues here, like where the 83 cents number come from and are they already doing that? Are we sure that they're not doing that? Um, but that's sort of the core provision here. So Evan, does that mean when I go to the dentist, and I have, dent I have dental insurance and I get my invoice and it says that my crown cost, um, you know, $1,200. It was adjusted for my insurance to $800 and I'm gonna pay whatever the, the you know, my insurance doesn't allow. Is the argument that um, the insurance company isn't paying what the dentist is charging and therefore it's requiring the dentist to lower what it bills the insurance company it's got nothing to do with that i mean that system will go on right okay. even if this passes even if they pay more but i think what would happen is the dentist would charge 1400 and the insurer would cover 950 you know i think like basically both of those numbers would go up um but really what they're saying is you know insurers would either pay more for individual things like when you go to the dentist you have a procedure maybe they'll pay a higher percentage or maybe they'll cover more procedures um, those would be kind of the two most likely outcomes here. And as you say, you pay a share of it, so you'll probably end up paying a little bit more, uh, not less. I think we can all agree this is precisely the kind of ballot question that does not belong <laughs> in the hands of the voters. Well, I don't know. I, I, I literally every time someone asks me about it, I have to take out a cheat sheet and remind myself of what's going on. And I, I'm still not honestly completely sure I understand all the ins and outs of it. But um, I is it, can you touch on, Evan, why it, it's, it seems like it's one person driving the train on this, that uh, one gentleman who started this? Well, it's one, it's one sort of individual who kind of stands behind it at the origin, right? Um, who had this idea, uh, who looked at other insurance worlds. So like we have a, we have something like this for medical insurance. There is a requirement for medical insurance that they pay out a certain percentage of their premium. So this thing exists. And there is this one person, an orthodontist, who said, you know, we should have this for dental insurance too. Like right now, dentists are not getting paid enough. Insurance companies are keeping too much of the premiums. We should change this. Um, and, you know, he has become the driving force behind it, but he's not the only force behind it now. I mean, the, the not surprisingly, um, dentists like it um, because they think it's going to increase the amount that they'll be able to collect from insurance companies. So it's become... Um, kind of more of an industry issue where it's dentists against insurance companies, I think is the standard thing. If you're looking at it and thinking, well, what's in it for me as a patient, 
I think the short answer is like not much, right? It's really a kind of intra-industry fight and the likelihood of big changes for patient care, very, very small. And I, I would add that I had an off the record anonymous conversation with someone who should understand this question and that person didn't. Great. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I guess it's a plug. Like you, you do have to vote on it. We don't have to vote on that, but you'll you have, have the opportunity. Vote on it. You have you the know, opportunity to vote on it. So if you want to know more about it, you know, it's a good thing that we're talking. And also, you know, we have some research and you can go read and figure it out and just, you know, the day before decide how you want to vote. But what if nobody votes? Like, what if not vote? Like, what does abstaining from voting do then, though? Because then people, other people will still vote and like ultimately something. You you could vote to keep whatever the status quo is, you know, and that's where the difficulty comes with the vote yes, vote no, you know, because, um, you, the way the questions get get framed is you don't know if a vote yes keeps things as a status quo or a vote no keeps things as a status quo. I think there are, to Evan's point, um, you know, a number of places you can go that basically says that. And I think it says it on the ballot. To, um, if I haven't read the ballot questions, how it appears, but it says things don't change if you vote no or don't yes. change if you vote right. yes. And yeah. for all of these questions this year, no is the status well i guess question four is a little complicated but no is the keep things the way they are currently enforced and yes is the hey let's change some stuff okay well with that that's an important thing for for voters to know with that in mind we'll move on to the to the third question here um and and i'll go to to you sue if you feel like you're if you feel like you're equipped to explain question three yeah i to you'll jump in everyone will help me of course um so this is question three which would expand um alcohol licensing availability it would double the amount of liquor licenses that a company or an individual could hold to 18 um, and seven would allow the sale of all liquor and spirits and the rest would allow beer and wine um this is sort of one of these ongoing battles that our puritan state has had with alcohol since uh, the beginning of our founding, even though we were basically founded by drunk beer-making people, uh, we tend to have a challenge when it comes to uh, uh, matching what other people do in other states. Um, I'm not sure what the happy hour part of this has to do, Evan, So and Allison, so I might defer to you, but uh, the liquor license availability question is also a bigger one. Some people may not understand that although you get a driver's license, uh, you don't get to count your driver's license as an asset. If you get a liquor license, you actually get to count that license to sell liquor as an asset to your business, which then begins to make money for you or becomes more valuable, which you can then sell. And we have a set number of licenses that people can have and that often um, people hold on to them forever. Talk about your inheritance tax issues. Uh, hold on to them forever. And that means that some folks, new folks, immigrants, black and brown communities don't have access to that. I don't know how this would actually impact those issues, but we have we have a bit of a quagmire when it comes to liquor license and liquor selling. You know, who can sell the liquor? Uh, I'm old enough and I'm sure you guys are too, not you, Mary, to remember when um, grocery stores couldn't sell liquor of any kind. Um, you know, happy hour for a while until about the early 80s and then we didn't so uh we've gone through a transformation but this seems to be a, a big question uh about what the next steps are great evan anything to add on that yeah i mean i i was right about the uh like strange history of alcohol sales and licensing in massachusetts the one of the weirder things about this ballot question is it doesn't actually do much to change that right like it 
it's not really increasing the number of licenses dramatically. We estimate it'll have basically no effect on alcohol consumption, alcohol purchasing. One way you know this is because the like distributors, the people in the alcohol industry don't care about this. They haven't taken sides, they're not running ads, there's no money in it. So there's no increased alcohol sales sort of connected to this. It really is about chain stores, you know, your your Cumberland farms, your grocery stores. They want to be able to sell beer and wine in more, a few more locations. And this would let them do that, maybe. Um, but the cities and towns will still be a bottleneck for licenses. Um, so the changes we're talking about are are few. I think the kind of most controversial one is that there's a change in the way the fines are calculated. And I really, I'm not going to bore people listening with how, but the, the big takeaway is like, it's bad for those chain stores, the new fine. This is why they, they really don't like it. Um, it makes it really hard for a chain store to sell alcohol and compete with package stores when it comes to kind of violations. I'm guessing that a lot of people read this question and just say, oh, increased liquor licenses? Yeah, don't we have a problem with that? This? Sure, and vote yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. right, but it sounds yeah. like it's more complicated than that. As always. But fortunately, I think uh, two things. One, I think the stakes of this are really low. Like a yes or no, I don't think it makes much of a difference. And people acknowledge this, but it doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, and one reason it doesn't make much of a difference is coming back. Like, this is not the last ballot question we're going to see on liquor licenses. Um, there's almost certain to be a follow-up in 2024. In fact, I mean, again, I won't get into the legal details, but like there's a strong incentive for groups to push a test case in 2024. So they will. Um, so we will see this again. This, this, is, this is far from the last uh, fight over this. Okay. And then we'll move on to question four, which is the driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. Which of you, you guys have each had a chance to explain a question? Any volunteers for the fourth one? I volunteer Evan again. Okay, Evan, can you explain the fourth question? Yeah, so I, and this one needs more explanation because it's not in the voter guide because it happened so late. Um, late. Right. Uh, but this is an interesting one because this is a law that passed. Right. This is a the legislature. I mean, Sue is saying, why does this come to voters? You know, why is the legislature? This is one of the legislature. They acted. They right. did their part. They passed a law that created a system for unauthorized immigrants to get driver's licenses in Massachusetts. Not the federal real ID licenses, but a different kind of license. And they said exactly what documents they would need to show and introduced some protections for data. And they, they passed this law and the governor vetoed it. They overrode the veto. And then a group of opponents organized for this veto referendum to say, there is one last chance to stop this law and that's to bring it before voters. So voters are being asked, yes means affirm the law that the legislature passed. Yeah. No means no, let's stop it before it takes, it has not taken effect. It won't take effect till next summer. Stop it before it takes effect. And, How and do you do? Is, that, is that okay? <laughs> that's great. As always. Yeah. And Sue and Allison, can you guys maybe explain what you've heard for the arguments for, for and against? Well, I mean, it's one of the things that the it's, this is a, being driven a lot by the Republican Party, and they have shown concern that um, if you get a license, these you know um, illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants get a um, a license, they'll be able to vote. Um, but there is my understanding a stipulation that does not allow you know prevents them from voting, um, and could have them deported if they were found to have voted. So um, I know other states in the country have been able to seem to have been able to get around that and it hasn't been a big problem, but um, I believe that's one of the biggest arguments against. So you might have. Yeah. And I mean, what a great idea that people would try to vote. I mean, you know, we have terrible voter turnout. I'm not exactly sure that undocumented um, folks are going to run to the polls to vote. So it's it's actually just 
in my opinion, a, a smokescreen uh, to, to really um, push forward a political agenda. And the other side says, quite rightfully, based on facts and stats, that other states that have allowed undocumented drivers to get licenses makes things safer on, safer on the roadway. So what's the impact um, of the law that's already passed to our community is that um, people get trained to be on the road. They actually have to have a license. If you're in an accident, um, they would stay instead of having it be a hit, hit and run in order to have your insurance back to insurance challenges. So there's plenty of data. There's also a number of lawmakers and law enforcement officials who say there's a, this law is a good thing. It doesn't change anything when it comes to immigration. It doesn't give anyone a pathway. It's simply in a really kind of odd way, um, allows undocumented people to be documented in some way. And we would know what they, where they are, they're here and they're trained to drive license, uh, drive cars. Mm -hmm. And they make the argument, which statistically it, it seems is true that it makes the roadways safer. I mean, listen, when we go to other countries on vacation, many of us drive, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not uncommon to have people who are not citizens driving in your st in, in your state or on your roads. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just statistically uh, something that should stay the way it is. So I, I will say just, you know, from our research, we did talk to folks in other states who have implemented this, not, not folks on the ground. I mean, we talked to folks at the DMV in a nearby state that has implemented this. And they said, no, they had absolutely no trouble authorizing documents, validating documents, and, you know, going through the process. Uh, we talked to the Secretary of State. They have no concerns about voting in Massachusetts and voter fraud. I mean, as an example, we, we already have a class of people in Massachusetts who are allowed to drive but not vote. If you're here with a green card, you can get a license, but you can't vote. There's a system. We don't have to create a system to separate these things. There's a system in place that stops everyone, that ensures that not everybody gets a license can vote. So they had just zero concerns about it. Or, I mean, to put it differently, if the RMV can't handle it, we have a much deeper problem at the RMV. Like 16 other states can handle it. We need to be able to handle it. Um, the RMV doesn't have the best reputation. Well, it doesn't. Any, like, I grew up in Connecticut. Connecticut is one of these states that has it. Trust me, the DMV in Connecticut does not have a great reputation. Okay. You know, <laughs> find a DMV, Mary, that has a great <laughs> reputation. But Mary does bring up a good point that the opposition pushes back yeah. on. What do we all think of our RMVs? You know, so. Let's put that on the ballot question. How about that? <laughs> After I get my ballot question passed to stop ballot questions, that's what I'm going to do in retirement. One issue we did, you know, where I think trust in the RMV does play an issue is with um, sort of record retention and record uh, maintenance here. Like we're going to create records on unauthorized immigrants in the state as part of this law. And safeguarding those records is a real challenge. And this is an area where other states have not managed to safely say. So other states have managed to implement this and get people on the roads. And, but there have been efforts, well, successful efforts and subpoenas by the federal government to get information about unauthorized immigrants in those other states through this program. That could happen here without the right safeguards. There also is some hacking risk around it. Um, I know that you know immigrants' rights organizations are not particularly concerned about this. They think the benefits of being able to get a license vastly outweigh the risk, the tracking risks. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a tracking risk. That is a real thing. And if we're pushing on the RMV, I think it should be on that side. Like, how are you going to safeguard these records? That's a great point. Um, before we wrap up for the for the day, any any final thoughts, any final pieces of advice for voters who are who are trying to tackle these complicated questions, as as Sue has mentioned. Just take take a half hour and do your homework. You know, yeah. it's I know it sounds dry, but I, I I can remember vividly a number of times I've walked into the the voting 
booth and looked at a question that I wasn't prepared for and thought, what? You know, and it might have been something I cared about. So it seems dry and awful, but it's your civic duty. So have a cup of coffee and check out all of our resources. Go to NBCBoston.com. Check out our... Well, no, I got, listen, I just changed my name, my screen name to my, the C-Spot desk. We wanted to get the research. <laughs> I figured this is the best way to do it. It's cspa.tufts.edu. We have a voter's guide and uh, you should go check it out. Let me no, just give a plug it. to Evan Horowitz. He is my go-to guy. such an expert and you do such a good job, Evan, of like plainly in plain English explaining this stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I do highly actually recommend you go to that website because it's helped me out a lot. And I go into the voting booth, actually. I try to say yes on this. No one, because I even get in there and go, no, wait, is he mm -hmm. discuss me and I'm supporting, you know, so it almost, right. you go in armed, ready to go. So you don't hold people up and blah, blah, blah. Whenever I hear someone smart on the radio, I go, who is this? And I go, oh, it's Evan. <laughs> Well, I will I will link to that website that Evan put up here um, in the articles that we post on on our website after this, just so everyone can find it wherever they go. Um, Evan, thank you so much. It's been great having you on. And thank you, Allison and Sue, for joining us again um, to help break down these uh, these subjects before Election Day. Thank you, Mary. Thank for you, Mary. Having us. Thank you. Important public service. Mm -hmm. <laughs>